Maybe you're here today and you're experiencing some suffering. This is going to be a message that by God's grace will bless your heart, I believe. It's blessed mine this week. Starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares or all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I invite you to pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as a people who are weak, who are needy. There are people here, Father, and you know every situation and circumstance that is going on in our lives. There are people here that today that are suffering. And they need your word. In fact, we all need this word today. And so I pray that you would, by your grace, open wide the mouths of your sheep and your word would come and it would feed us and nourish us. And let us leave satisfied, satisfied in you, satisfied in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. Suffering. How do you handle suffering? It's the summer of 1967 and a 17-year-old teenager takes a deep dive into the Chesapeake River and her life changes in an instant. Immediately, her spinal cord is severed at the fourth cervical level. She becomes a quadriplegic for the rest of her life without the use of her hands, without the use of her feet. For the rest of her life, she will have to depend on other people. For the rest of her life, she will have to have somebody with her at night to turn her over in bed because she can't flip herself over. For the rest of her life, she will have to struggle with bouts of shortness of breath. How do you handle suffering? In 2005, she begins a lifelong battle with chronic pain. Here's what she says about the chronic pain. She says it's like being in a wrestling ring with an enemy that seems to grow larger and more fiendish and hatefully aggressive with each passing month. How do you handle suffering? In 2010, she's diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. She undergoes the the surgical scalpel, having a mastectomy and a rigorous round of chemotherapy. She says that her, her battle with cancer makes quadriplegia look like a walk in the park. How do you handle suffering? 
In 2015, she's pronounced cancer-free. But then in 2018, she finds out that the cancer has returned. And once again, she undergoes the surgical knife. How do you handle suffering? Well, if you've been swimming in the grace of God for almost 52 years, here's how you handle suffering. Listen to the words of Johnny Erickson Tata. She says this, I would not trade this intimacy with God, this sweetness, this nearness, this tenderness, this preciousness of faith that has come alive in my life. She says, I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking. Outwardly, we are wasting away, but inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. God has not abandoned those with disabilities. No, he's working through them. God's power always shows up best through weakness. Johnny Erickson Tata is a jar of clay like Paul talks about. A jar of clay that is broken, that is cracked. But what is seeping through those cracks shows that there is a surpassing power in her. The surpassing power of Christ that shows that he is living in her and it is bringing glory to him. How do you handle suffering? Well, I'll be the first to tell you in here today that I'm not even even remotely close to how Johnny Erickson Tata handles suffering. And I would imagine that most of us in here are not. But I'll tell you this, man, do I want to be able to embrace suffering like that? Do I want to be able to, to, to embrace suffering with the strength that she has? And do I want to be able to embrace suffering, swimming in the grace of God like she has, and experiencing just God's blessing after blessing after blessing in her, renewing her, giving her hope? I want to experience that, and I want him to gain all the glory. And I know something today, that if you're here, and if you've experienced this change of hearts that's come to, to you like it's come to me where God has come into your life and he's regenerated you by exchanging that heart of stone with a heart that's alive for him. I know that you want that too. And so what is the secret? What's the secret? Well, I want to invite you on a journey with me this morning to discover or begin to discover at least a theology of suffering. And what we're going to see is that the secret to, to this is the secret is a humble trust in a big God with big promises who dispenses out immeasurable grace to those who are his, to those who are in Christ. Peter's going to show us today in 1 Peter 5 that God's plan is not merely to free you from suffering, but his plan is to free you in suffering. So today, before we jump into 1 Peter chapter 5, I want to give us just a little bit of context of this letter. Peter, as I mentioned earlier, he's, he's writing to a suffering church. Peter has seen the ministry of Jesus. He's been with them. He's seen the sufferings of Jesus. He's seen the crucifixion. He's seen the resurrection. He's seen Jesus uh, uh, go up, ascend into the heavens. He's seen it all, and he's been commissioned to go and tell people what he's seen. And he is writing to a church that, that is experiencing a significant amount of suffering and persecution because of their Christian faith. These are a people that, that we find out in this letter that, that are being discriminated against in some places. They're being persecuted. 
and they're being mistreated. And so he's writing this letter for a purpose, and that purpose is to encourage them, to strengthen them, to to give them a hope so that they will continue in the faith and they'll persevere in spite of the suffering for the glory of God. And he does that in a number of ways. I wish we had time to really hone in on on everything that Peter talks about in this letter, but two things I want to mention to you. One way that he does it, and we're going to see it even in our passage today, is he points to the sovereignty of God. He points to a very, very big God that's involved in suffering. And then he points to the reality that there is, is, is a purpose in suffering. Suffering is not just to, 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 for God just to, to play with your life. Suffering has a purpose, and it's a refining purpose. It's a purpose that, that Peter compares to gold. He says it's like gold going into the fire. I love what uh, Martin, uh, I'm sorry, I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon said about that passage, about, about his, his refining fire, comparing it to gold. Spurgeon says this, when the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, it will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible and will find sweet satisfaction even in the flames. So in our passage today, we're moving in. We're in chapter five. Peter is pulling out all the stops and he is, he is giving them closing exhortations that this is how you can strengthen your knees, strengthen those wobbly knees, and this is how you can persevere in the faith. And so jump in with me today into verse six. First thing I want us to see is that strength to humbly endure suffering today depends on your view of God and his future promises. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Therefore is a very important word in the scriptures, very important word in this verse. It's giving us an indication that Peter's drawing a conclusion from me, something that he's said right in the previous verse. He's actually quoted Proverbs 3.34. It's actually a paraphrase of Proverbs 3.44 that he says this, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Peter's thinking is this. This is the conclusion he's making. Well, since God opposes the proud and he gives, pours down grace on the humble, Humble yourselves in suffering. This idea of humble yourselves carries with it this, what it literally means is is this lowly mindedness. And so it's this attitude of the mind where you see yourself as lowly like a servant. Peter had said something earlier in verse 5 as well. He had said, he's been talking about this relationship between pastors and the rest of the church and how they're to relate to one another. And he says this, he says, clothe yourselves all of you with humility towards one another. This idea of clothe yourselves carries with it this, this, this idea where you're, you're actually putting on a garment and you're tying it on yourself. And oftentimes it's used to refer to a servant who will put on a servant's apron and tie it around him and get ready to serve his master. And so in the way that you, with the way that Jeff and, and Mike, the way that the pastors of this church relate to the church, they are to tie on a servant's apron with an attitude of serving you. And church, when you think about how you relate to them, you are to tie on the servant's apron and serve them. And that's the same thing you're to do with each other. But in verse six, Peter's doing something different. He's saying, you need to tie on the servant's apron and serve God in suffering. Now let me ask you a question. 
when suffering comes into your life or the threat of suffering comes into your life, is that typically the attitude that you have is, man, I'm ready to serve God in this. Ironically, if you want to experience freedom in suffering, that's actually the attitude that you have to have, as we'll see in this text in just a bit. So he says that, continues, he says that, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Here we have Peter's identity we, we, of the one that we're serving. Obviously, it's God. He gives us a posture. Actually, I would call it two postures. First posture, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God in a posture of submission under the mighty hand of God. And so, yeah, I might ask the question, what are you, what are you submitting to? Well, I think a few things. One, you're submitting to the reality that that suffering has been brought into your life by a sovereign God for a purpose. And so you're not chafing against it. You're not resisting it. You're accepting it as from your father. Second thing, it's a posture or it's a submission to the duration of the suffering. You're going to see that in a little bit. He talks about it being uh, in God's proper time. He uses that word. And so there's, you're submitting to God's timing for that suffering. And a third thing is you're submitting to uh, being faithful to him in the midst of the suffering, which means that as you're going through the difficulties of whatever suffering you're going through, you're not moving to the right, you're not moving to the left, you're staying the course, being faithful to him and being faithful to his word. That means you're not cheating or lying or deceiving or stealing in order to try to wiggle your way out or alleviate the pain of suffering. You're staying the course in the suffering. And so that is the, the three main areas of submission. The second posture is this idea of a posture of dependence and so you are you are going under the mighty humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of god underneath this mighty hand for protection and for provision you're relying on that mighty hand for a protection and provision in your life through through that suffering now the third thing that we see in this passage, we see the character of the one that we are serving. It says, Peter says that he is mighty, that he has a mighty hand. What that means is mighty means that, that he's powerful, not just powerful. He's all-powerful, right? And a hand comes with it. This is a, hand is a metaphor in the scriptures. Uh, it's also literal, but in this case, it's a metaphor. And what it has to do with is, is control. It's the, it's the controlling hand of God. And so you put these two things together and what we see is what he's talking about is that God has sovereign control over everything, including the sufferings. And what does that mean? Well, that means that God exercises rule over all of his creation, doing whatever his will pleases. And so we see that just to give you one example, we see that in Daniel 434 and 435, God had had uh, God's mighty hand had suffered, had, had, had humbled, I should say, the mighty hand of, of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He'd humbled him from the throne of, of being king all the way to putting him in the fields, eating grass like a beast for a season of his life. And then God restored him. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar has come to the reality to say about God. He says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I love 
the quote from R.C. Sproul that Pastor Jeff has probably shared a hundred times with you. That he says this, that there is no maverick molecule if God is sovereign. Which means that there's no molecule out in the universe that's just floating around that's not under God's mighty hand and in God's control. And what that means for us today is that there are no maverick sufferings that will ever come into your life or in my life. But here we also have in this phrase an incredible encouragement that might not be, might not be seen right off the bat. This word mighty hand carries with it some historical weight. You might have heard this word mighty hand before. It's talked about over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And it's speaking of when God came in to deliver his suffering people out of enslavement in Egypt. Let me give you one example of that in Deuteronomy uh, 7.8. He says this, but it is because this is Moses speaking to the Israelites right before they go into into the promised land. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And so here's the encouragement. The same mighty hand that shook loose the quote unquote mighty hand of Pharaoh is the same mighty hand that will shake loose every afflictor of those who are in Christ, whether that be human or otherwise. That means from persecutor to pancreatic cancer, they have no chance, none of them, because of his mighty hand. And it is not a hypothetical power. It's a proven power. It's not like we have to stand here and say, I wonder if God can do that. No, he's proven himself, not only in the Exodus, but certainly by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the encouragement today is that we can know for sure that suffering for us is not going to last forever, those who are in Christ. And that is an incredible encouragement. So Peter continues. Let me just say this before I go there. When you have a, a view of a big God like this, Here's how you can suffer. Here's how you can face suffering. Here's what Johnny Erickson Tata said when she found out that her cancer had returned. When I received the unexpected news of cancer from my oncological surgeon, I relaxed and smiled, knowing that my sovereign God loves me dearly and holds me tightly in his hands. What good is it if, uh, if we only trust the Lord when we understand his ways? That only guarantees a life filled with doubts. So let me ask you today, what are you suffering with? What are you suffering with? Whatever it is, I just want to encourage you. There is so much strength and hope and joy And peace that is to be found if you will dip your mind into the reality of what God has said about his sovereignty. It will will sweeten your soul. It's sweetened mine. Peter continues, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And so exalt means to, to, to raise up. To raise up. So the end goal is not humility in and of itself. The end goal is is to be freed from suffering. The end goal is to be raised up. And so the strength to endure endure suffering in in the here and now and today not only depends on our view of a big God, it also depends on our view of his future promises. Listen to what Jesus says about this promise in John 6.40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him 
should have eternal life. And listen, and I will raise him up on the last day. You know, a firm trust in God's future promises like this, it will move you to suffer through all kinds of crazy things to the world for the glory of God. It's what moved the father of a 21-year-old girl by the name of Anne Hasseltine and Anne herself to say yes to a marriage proposal like this. I want you to hear this. In this father's and this mother's, as you listen to this, think about what your answer would be to this marriage proposal. And that'll tell you where, where you view God and how you view his future promises. Listen to what he says. And I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing souls, immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Signed, Adoniram Judson, which is America's first or one of America's first foreign missionaries to Burma. Anne said yes to that proposal. Her father said yes to that proposal. And Anne did indeed lose her life on the mission field. You see, strength to humbly endure suffering today depends on your view of God and his future promises. The second thing I want you to see in this text in verse 7 is that freedom in suffering comes from entrusting all that you fear losing to the sovereign care of God. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, the way that we humble ourselves in suffering is by casting all of our anxieties on him. And the reason that we would do that is because we really believe that he cares for us. Cast means to throw something or to hurl something on to something else. So think about this. Think about, imagine I've got a 50 pound bag of sand and I'm, I'm lugging that thing on the stage right now and, and I take that and I throw it or I hurl it onto the back of a horse. All of a sudden, the weight has transferred off of me and the weight has been transferred onto the horse. That's the picture that we get with casting our anxieties on God. Peter tells us about the quantity that we need to be casting. He says that you need to be casting 30% of your anxieties on God. Right? No. 100%. All your anxieties on Him. So let's talk about anxiety. What is anxiety? Well, anxiety is simply this. It is fear of losing something that you treasure or you value or you desire. So fear of losing something that you, you treasure or value or desire. And so let's, let's think about this. I mean, and you can think about this in suffering. In suffering, you can see how it's a prime environment for anxiety because there's always a threat of losing something in suffering. So think about an example. Imagine that 
that you're here today and you have you, you have anxiety about hurricane season, right? And so if you've got anxiety about hurricane season, what that means is that you fear losing something that you treasure, value, or desire. It could be you fear you're losing your fear of losing your life. It could be fear of losing your, your families and people's, people's lives you love. It could be that you fear losing your house or your possessions. It could be that you fear losing your comfort. I know that there are some of you here that are still displaced from your homes from after Hurricane Florence, and you're not living in as comfortable uh, means as you used to when you were in your home. And so it could be a million different things that you, you, could, you, could, have, uh, you could fear losing. But here's the tricky part about anxiety. The tricky part is, is that it's not wrong to want to not lose your life, right? I know that's kind of a, you have to think about that. It's not wrong to want to not lose your house or to want to not lose your possessions or to want to not lose your comfort. Those things aren't wrong. But what anxiety points to is that those things are, are no longer just legitimate concerns and desires. What anxiety points to is, is that those things have become must-haves in your life. They've been elevated into your heart to such a place that, that you, you, you basically are saying, I must have fill in the blank with whatever, whatever you fear losing, your reputation, uh, your health. Uh, I must have a, 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 the best marriage. I must have pleasure in my marriage. It could be anything. I must have this. And if I don't have this, then I have nothing. I don't have life. And so you've elevated to a place. This is what Jesus is, is talking about in Luke 12. If you remember him talking about anxiety, he says, and, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For, listen, for life is more than food, and the body is more than than clothing. The point he's making is that anxiety signals that we are associating life with whatever it is that we fear losing. And so when something like that becomes that important to us, here's what we do. We take whatever it is that we fear losing and we take our hands and we begin to close our fist around it. And we no longer trust God and we no longer trust his provision and his way and his timing and we draw it in close and we do everything that we can to try to protect it and to try to control it. And what we soon realize is it's really quickly we realize this, that we can't protect it and we can't control it. And that's where anxiety comes in and that's where it grabs us and enslaves us. So let me ask you this morning, what are you anxious about? Is it your life? Is it your health? Is it your, um, what, is it your marriage? Is it, is it something completely different? What exactly are you anxious about? Your future? I can tell you this. In the most loving way that I can say this, we make horrible gods. We make horrible gods. When we grasp a hold of something like that, we are carrying a burden that we were never designed to carry, and that makes us miserable. And it also shows our God, and at least in the way we relate to him, it shows our God to be weak. It shows our God to not be trustworthy. And so what Peter's calling us to in this passage, and what Jesus was calling his disciples to in that passage in Luke 12, is he's calling you to freedom. He's calling you to freedom, to open your hand to God and to say, God, 
I, I am going to entrust these things that I value to you because you care about me. And I believe that. And, and I'm going to give them to you in such a way that, that I'm leaving the outcome to you. And so whether you do what, what I want to be done or whether you don't do what I want to be done with those things, I entrust you with those because I, I believe what Ephesians 1.11 says. That you work all things according to the counsel of your will. And I believe what Romans 8.28 says. That, that for those whom you've called, you work all things for our good. I believe those things. And I believe what your word says. That, that you'll never leave me. And you'll never forsake me. And I know, I know from the bottom of my heart. That your care is a comprehensive care. Of both my body and my soul. Both in this life as well as for the one to come. And so you can have freedom and that freedom comes in suffering comes from entrusting all that we fear losing to the sovereign care of God. Third thing I want us to see this morning, that freedom, in, and this is in verses 8 and 9, freedom in suffering is safeguarded by standing firm in faith, resisting the slanderer's attacks. Be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so here we have a sober reminder that we have, a, we have an enemy. He's a fierce enemy. Peter says he's our adversary. That's a word that's a legal word that has to do with a, an opponent in a lawsuit. And so imagine you're the defendant. And he's the prosecuting attorney. He wants to prove you guilty. He wants to prove you guilty. Peter says, it gives, it gives us the identity. He says he's the devil. That word means he's the slanderer. And that's very important for us to understand because that's his MO. That's what he does. He slanders. He slanders and tries to slander you before God. He tries to slander you before other people. He tries to slander other people in your eyes. And probably most significantly when it comes to suffering, he is going to try to slander God in your eyes. So Peter talks us, talks us through this. He says that he has a goal. And his goal is, is to, he is seeking someone to devour. This word means to swallow up. Swallow up so something ceased to exist. And that's very appropriate when you think about the picture he uses of a lion. That this lion is his prowling activity. He's, he's prowling around. And he's roaring because he's hungry. His belly aches. And the only thing that's going to satisfy his belly is not that food that's on the back table right now. The only thing that's going to satisfy his belly is to swallow up your faith. That is his goal. And so I want you to see his tactic. This is how he works. If you want to, it'll be up on the screen. But Genesis 3, here's his tactic. This is his slanderous tactic. Uh, he said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see what he's doing here? What he's doing is he is asking Eve a question to see how she understands the world that she's been brought into. To see how she understands God to see how she understands humanity. And for the most part, she gets it right. But then, look what the slanderer does next. He says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, now he's offering her an alternate worldview. This is how you should understand God. He is, he's actually not good. He's actually, uh, he, he's a deceiver. He's keeping you from life. He can't be trusted. And then he offers her an alternate understanding of humanity. You weren't made to live in this slavery under God's authority. You weren't made for that. You can be like God. Shake loose these chains of slavery and become like God. And so that is exactly what he does. And you know the rest of the story. Our first parents, they adopt his alternate worldview and they plunge the world into ruin, the ruin that we see it in today. And so the reason that's important for us to see is because this is the same tactic he uses with us when we suffer or are threatened with suffering. He's going to try to slander God before our eyes. And so he'll do things like this. You're suffering with a, with a chronic illness? Well, God's really not much, as much as in control as he says he is. You should be worried. Oh, you're, you're, you're suffering. You're not able to get pregnant. Oh, God must not care for you. Haven't you seen how, how he's blessed so many other women with, 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 with kids? If he'll say, and he'll say things like, if, you're, uh, if your marriage isn't what you expect it to be, if you're suffering in your marriage, he'll say things like this. Oh, God wants you to be happy. I want you to be happy. God would be okay if you got out of this relationship or you were unfaithful to your spouse. God would be okay with that. And so his slanderous lies are designed to swallow up your faith, your trust in God. And so what are we to do with this? What are we going to do with that? Well, what we're not told to do is fear. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told to fear. In fact, I was caught by something in uh, one of the songs that we sang earlier today, Mighty Fortress. That, that's exactly what, what he said in, in that song, that, that we aren't to fear him because he's a defeated enemy. The day is coming. Read it in Revelation. It's already written in the book. The day is coming that he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and he's going to be tormented forever and ever and ever and ever. Glory to God. I can't wait till that day happens. So what are we to do? Peter gives us a three-pronged battle plan. Three-pronged battle plan. He says this. Okay, suffering comes into your life or the threat of suffering comes into your life. Here's what you need to do before the enemy attacks. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Be sober-minded. This means to be in control of one's thought processes so that not to be in danger of irrational thinking. You can see how important that is when you consider that that's where the enemy goes. He is going for your thoughts and so to have control of your thought processes. The second thing, battle plan, is, is to be watchful, which means to stay awake because you know that you have a need to be alert. And especially when suffering comes into your life, you got to be alert. You got to be alert for these, these indicators that he's, he's, he's there or he's attacking. And so uh, the third thing that I want you to see is, is, this, is this is to... This is during the attack. This is when you sense him attacking, which is when you experience anxiety or fear coming and, and swelling up in your heart. It says resist him. Resist him, which means to stand up against him. How do you do that? Peter says by being firm in our faith. Now, this isn't rocket science to be firm in our faith. But let me just tell you, 
do you know how easy it is for us to think so simplistically? This is just too simplistic, and 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 I'm just going to just put this over to the side. This is not that big of a deal. This is exactly what Paul's talking about in, in uh, Ephesians 6 when he talks about putting on the armor of God. You've got the shield of faith. You've got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is exactly what Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. You're tempting me, Satan? Blah, blah, Word of God, Word of God. And so that's what we're called to, by believing when he attacks, believing and responding to God's word, who he is, who he is for us, and what he's promised. No better person to talk about anxiety that comes along with suffering, again, than Johnny Erickson Tata. She says this, anxiety has become the devil's most useful tool in discouraging us Christians. To know that every day, and I mean every single day, I have to dismantle anxious thoughts and make them captive to Christ. Thoughts like, oh my goodness, what if this pain gets worse and I can't sleep tonight? Or what if something happens to my husband Ken and I can't and he can't take care of me? And the really big hand grenade that the devil lobs, what about the future? What if my pain gets worse? But I have discovered that anxiety is defanged, that fear is declawed when we face, when we pick up, when we embrace our private crosses. But ours is not to wonder if, when, and why. Ours is to pick up the cross that God has given to us, trusting that he will never, ever give us a cross that is one ounce too heavy or one inch too long because he has hand-tailored your hardships and mine. And no suffering can touch us that has not been first been filtered through his fingers. So ours is to fix our eyes on Jesus, lock them there, keep them there. And if we do that, the devil will hightail it taking with him all those fears and anxieties that are in his arsenal. And so not only is this a great illustration of what that looks like to fight him when he's attacking, but it also reminds us that we are not in this battle of suffering together. We are in it together, I should say. We're not in it alone. We're not isolated because that's what Satan wants to do. He is going to try to make you isolate you and make you think that you're suffering alone and nobody else understands. Look, Peter says that we're, we are a part of a brotherhood. We're a part of a family. That we are locked arm in arm, striving for the celestial city together. But it is a road of suffering. And we have to be encouraged by one another. And so we need to, to stand firm in, in that, reminding ourselves of that. We're not the only ones. We're not the only ones. The last thing I want you to see is that freedom in suffering is sustained by knowing God's story and your place in it. Knowing God's story and your place in it. The first thing that we need to know is that God's story involves suffering. It involves suffering. Look what Peter writes. He says, and after you have suffered a little while. The implication, you're going to suffer. Peter had said this in chapter 4. You know this verse. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The road to the celestial city. For those of you who are, who are studying Pilgrim's Progress, the road to the celestial city is a road that is marked with suffering. Don't be surprised. It's not strange. It's to be expected. The same, second thing that we need to know about God's story is that it is a story that's soaked in grace for God's people. Look what he says. He says, Peter tells us that he is the God of all grace. He is the source of all grace. He is the the, the, the one who is the supplier of all grace. And it's a story that is soaked in grace starting before the foundation of the world when God in his sovereign pleasure chose to save 
people that would be his enemies, individuals that would be his enemies, by sending his glorious son to live for them, to die for them, and to rise from the dead for them. But Peter's talking about something different here. Peter's talking about the, the grace that is, that is poured out on his people. And he's talking about how we can be confident of our place in God's story. How can we be confident of that? Are we really on the way to the celestial city? Well, he writes this, that the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Now, when he uses this word, who, who has called you, he's talking to, of course, these, these suffering Christians that are in uh, these various cities in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey. And he is, he, is, he is talking to them and saying, look, here's how you can know, because God's called you. You remember you were living in darkness? And this isn't the outward call of the gospel, by the way. This is that, that calling that is the inner calling of God known as the effectual calling where by his grace, God, he summons people to himself through the work of his spirit in such a, such a way that we freely, we are freed, I should say, to respond in saving faith. I love what R.C. Sproul says about this. It is not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and disposition of our wills so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing and more than willing. Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ. We run to Christ and we embrace him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. They are no longer hearts of stone that are impervious to the commands of God and to the invitations of the gospel. God melts the hardness of our hearts when he makes us new creatures. Let me ask you this morning, have you experienced God's calling to salvation? Do you love, love, love Christ? Do you love, love, love the gospel? Do you hate, hate, hate sin? If you do, then you are on your way to the celestial city. If you're here today and, and, and you're thinking, well, I, you know, I really don't know. I want to encourage you. This week, this afternoon or this week, open up 1 John. 1 John is a wonderful book for you to test to see whether you are in the faith. He'll say, hey, here's how you can know you're in the faith. If you're a Christian, here's how you can be pretty sure that you're not. He'll say things like this. No one who is born of God will continue to practice sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. And so he'll say things like this to remind us that, hey, if you're indulging in sin and continuing to stay there for, for lengthy periods of time and you're okay with that, then that's not an assurance that you've, you've experienced this effectual calling. And so if you're here today and you've not experienced that, you know, hey, I'm here, I'm not a Christian. I just want to lovingly tell you what, what Jesus commands you to do. Jesus has told you to repent and to believe the gospel, to repent and believe the gospel. Here's the gospel, that because of your sin, your sin has separated you from a holy God, and that there is coming a day that he is going to judge the world in righteousness. What that means is he's going he's to take this Ten Commandments, and he's going to put them up, and he's going to bring the world before the Ten Commandments. And he's going to see, have you met every single one of these Ten Commandments in thought and word and deed? And everyone who is not in Christ is going to fall far short. Have you ever lied? 
You ever stolen anything? You ever lusted after someone? Jesus said you've committed adultery in your heart. You ever hated someone? That's equated to murder. And so if you've fallen short of that, you're going to have a day where you're going to be, you're going to be found to be guilty. And what that's going to show is just not that, oh, man, God is just, he's just not gracious. No, it's going to show how you actually responded to God in this life, that you, you accounted him as nothing. The one who gave you life, the one who gave you taste buds, the one who gave you laughter, the one who is gracious enough to not bring the axe on, down on you today. He loves you. And he has, called, he has sent his son in his mercy, according to his great mercy. He has sent his own son to represent his people. To live a life where he fulfilled all righteousness. Which means what his people didn't do, he, he earned that perfect righteous record for them. And then he went to the cross. And this is essentially a picture of what he did. He went to the courtroom of heaven where that table, the evidence table was stacked as high as can be for his people. And he scraped up all of it. And he said, this belongs to me now. I accept responsibility for this. And he goes to the cross and he pays for that debt in full. He says, it is finished. It is finished. And then he dies and is placed in a sealed tomb but on the third day he's brought back to life again to never die again proving that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do and he commands you to repent and to believe the gospel which means that you are to turn to him turn from your sin turn from this life that you've been living in opposition to him and turn to him as your lord and as your savior a change of mind that leads to a change in direction in your life and he commands you to believe the gospel which means you believe that every single one of your sins are forgiven and you believe that his righteousness that he earned is counted as belonging to you as if you had lived his life the moment you do that you can be assured that you have experienced this effectual calling that Peter is talking about. And if that happens, oh, you will be able to join the heavenly congregation in the last part of God's story that we need to know. It has the happiest of endings. Peter writes this, that God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, the end of the story for Christians is that there is nothing lost and nothing broken and nothing weakened in suffering that will not be restored one million fold. Revelation 21, 4 through 5, he says this, at that time he will wipe away every tear from their, their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And all of this is certain and unthwartable because he has dominion over his creation. He is the author of the story from the first page to the last page. And he, will, he has already written the ending and it will most certainly come to completion. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And so as we conclude this morning, we once again will conclude with the words of Johnny Erickson Tata. Maybe when my accident happened, maybe the devil's motive was to shipwreck the faith of that young 17-year-old girl. Maybe it was to use her to make a mockery out of God's goodness. Maybe it was to defame his sweet character. But remember, God is in the business of aborting devilish schemes, always to serve his own ends and his own purposes. 
And God's motive in my accident was to turn a headstrong, rebellious teenager into a woman who can reflect something of his patience, something of his perseverance, something of his endurance, something of his character. And after 40 years in a wheelchair, that's which this is when she said that she was 40 years in a wheelchair. She's almost 52 years in a wheelchair now. 40 years in a wheelchair, I can say that my own suffering has lifted me up out of my spiritual slumber. It has got me seriously thinking about the lordship of Christ in my life. It has helped convince the skeptical, cynical world that my God is worth trusting. I am loyal to him despite my affliction and infirmity. That heaven is real and so is hell. And my suffering has shown me that there are more important things in life than walking and using hands. And most of all, it has shown me that Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, saves and sanctifies always through suffering. The secret to suffering is a humble trust in a big God with big promises who has an enormous, immeasurable amount of grace to be poured out on his people who will humble themselves before him. God's plan is not merely to free you from your suffering. God's plan is to free you in suffering. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word is strong. I am weak, but your word is strong. <laughs> and this is a word that Lord, if, if you by your grace will allow us to, to grasp a hold of with, with the hands of our hearts and to cling to for the rest of our lives, oh, how much joy it will bring us and freedom it will bring us in suffering and how much glory it will bring to you. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Johnny Erickson Tata's life that gives us an example to follow as she follows Christ in suffering. We love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for feeding us always. In Jesus' name, amen.